0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to Opening Set. This is the voice of King Mos with my man, John Reyes, Riding Shotgun, as always. Season 4, Episode 6. And before we get into some, uh, you know, awesome podcasting, here's some housekeeping. As always, you can find Opening Set on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Like, share, tell your friends. Always very appreciated. You can find me and John Reyes both on Twitch. I'm under Hey King Most. He is under Stank Palmer, as well as SoundCloud, Instagram, Bandcamp. We were uh, definitely pumping out the pancakes and his remixes, by the way. And today's very special guest is Icy Ice. He's a founding member of the Bee Junkies, Legend Entertainment, and an active DJ on Twitch. And in this conversation, we get a glimpse into how he and his children connect with music. Check it out.
1: I can play some jazz samples and then say, oh, Tribe Called Quest used it in this song, or La used it in this song, you know, like just kind of just showing. Or like Peter Piper, yeah, they took it from Bob James and they used this piece of the song. So he understands that, he appreciates it. It's cool being able to share that and share that knowledge and he can have that kind of appreciation for the music and the originals. And
0: the reason why I like that passage is because, as you hear in the podcast, it really speaks to the ability to connect with others via music, in this case, his children. I think that's something that's very sacred and intimate, and, you know, I'm just really glad he shared that with us. Also in this conversation, we had a lot of history on mobile DJ crews in Southern California, the Beach Junkies, and also the city of Carson, California. And the reason why I like this conversation is because a goal of opening set is to try to like humanize the dj as much as possible yes we hear a lot about how he's such like a legendary figure but the fact that he shared how he interacts with children his successes difficulties of you know running a business running a nightlife was a good reminder of why we do this you know yes there's some history of course which is always great but also again the, the humanizing aspect as well And to uh, keep in touch with Icy Ice on Twitch, find him under DJ, letter D, letter J, I-C-Y, I-C-E. Also find him with the Beach Junkies at Snapback Thursdays. And just really anywhere there's DJ history in Southern California, you will find him. All right. King Most, John Ray's opening set and yourselves. Be safe, be well. We'll talk soon what is up everybody welcome to opening set podcast this is your boy king most with john reyes riding shotgun as always this is our uh you know quarantine covid season and today's very special guest is somebody i'm just so excited to talk to uh he's got so much history and so many awesome things happening right now as well please give it up for my man dj icy ice
1: what up king most What up, John? Thanks for having me on the show. No,
0: thank you for doing it. Like I said, uh, this is a season based around the quarantine current life. And as uh, we're going to maybe find out
1: that your children are here and they're in the background practicing karate. (laughs) (laughs) I Literally, as we are recording this podcast, man, they're in their karate lessons. So if you guys hear a hiya or any of that stuff, man. As long as we don't hear them crying or yelling too hard, then. But
0: uh, yeah, today's talk. There's so much stuff I want to learn about your history and your current stuff. Everything from, like I said, Snapback Thursdays to Legend Entertainment to Beat Junkies to always pivoting to new kind of avenues with online retail stores. Yeah, man. Yeah, tons of good stuff, man. So in doing my research and doing my homework for you, (laughs) you DJ for a bunch of high schoolers via a TED Talk. How tough is it to DJ for a room full of high schoolers? I don't know. I'd be mad intimidated. Let me know about
1: that. Well, number 1, I was delivering a talk, a 20-minute TED talk to these uh, high schoolers, man. So, speaking to high schoolers is a whole different thing, man. And then having to play for them after it's fun because it's a challenge. High schoolers are on a whole different vibe than uh, what we came up with or, you know, they're they're just on all these different YouTube artists and different types of songs that we've never even heard about, man. TikTok, all that stuff, man. It's a whole new time, but it's dope. That challenge of making a move. How did you feel you did
0: afterwards when you were DJing and you're scratching and and doubling up? What did you walk away with feeling?
1: I think I educated first and foremost. They don't often get to see like a DJ cut it up, man. They'll see a DJ, you know, on a little controller or at their school dance do something, but, you know, play song to song, but to do some turntablism, some turntable tricks, like just stuff that they... I think they walked away with it like, ooh, whoa, crazy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of my talk was like kind of explaining what DJing is, what a scratch is, what the art is all about, that type of thing. So it was cool. It was a cool experience.
0: And as we're doing this, we hear your children in the background. Do butt heads, or do you guys kind of compliment each other like, oh, dad, you should listen to this? Or or, or son, what do you know about so-and-so artists? How does the, uh, the taste, how does that work out in the household?
1: Well, the funny thing is my teenager, He's about 14 now (laughs) and he's just starting high school, but he's not into pop music or any kind of like music his friends are into, man. He's more into jazz. He plays piano. He plays keys. That's more his thing, man. But the funny thing is my 10 year old and my nine year olds, they're the ones that are kind of like all in the pop music, man. So they're putting me up on game as far as who they're listening to, who they're checking out on YouTube. Who's got the dope TikTok video? They're up on all of that, man, and they show me. We'll be in the car and they're like, can you play this artist? I'm like, what is this? And so I pull it up on my uh, Apple Music or something and then I play it and I'm like, oh, okay, educates me. So it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm just imagining your your algorithm on your Apple Music
0: is like, Divine Styler, Roy Ayers, <laughs> and Billie Eilish or something like that there. Yeah, exactly. The jazz thing was playing hip hop with like say
1: tribe or
0: common. Do your son pick
1: up that a little easier? I think so, man. Because he's into that jazz vibe, like I can play some jazz samples and then say, oh, Tribe Call Quest used it in this song, or Dela used it in this song. And, you know, like just kind of just showing. Or like Peter Piper, yeah, they took it from Bob James and they used this piece of the song. So he understands that he appreciates it. It's cool being able to share that. And share that knowledge and he can have that kind of appreciation for the music and the originals.
0: Yeah, I've just realized right now that it's so surreal that you're talking Bob Jay's and Royer's and Tribe Samples. That is like a big entry point for people like our peers. And yeah. it's so funny, like 30 some odd years later or whatever, it's now like our entry point all over once again. As much as we evolve and change,
1: good music is kind of timeless or whatever. Yeah, and good so- music is timeless, period, man. So that, that's what's dope. And that's what I love about you guys' is remixes and your edits and stuff is you got that vibe, that soulful vibe. It's real dope.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I just try to keep it tasteful. And also as like a lifelong DJ, like what's useful? Like I understand people with our type of taste. Like we want to like rock the party, but also we want to be tasteful and, and show a little flavor. So like, right. okay, how to like get the X and Y coordinates kind of matching up. So we're talking about you know children and coming up. You're born and raised mostly in the city of Carson
1: and Long Beach. Is that overlap or is it more Carson? Carson sits right in between Long Beach and Compton, man. So like it's, it's the middle city between those two. But I spent a lot of time in Long Beach. Growing up in Carson, it's a multicultural city. There's more minorities than anything. I mean, there's a good mix of minorities over there, but Filipinos, Latinos, Samoans, like they kind of dominate, man, out of all the the minorities in there. But the music culture, everything that I grew up around in Carson, it was all based around hip hop, man. Early, early on, like your LL Cool J's run DMC's and Houdini's moving all the way up, man. Like just Carson kind of covered all that. But the cool thing growing up over there was you had like the B-Boys, breakdancing culture was crazy in the city guys like boogaloo shrimp from Breakin', he grew up in that area right in that city i would see him like at a shell gas station <laughs> pumping gas <laughs> or as i was getting into high school a rap group called booyah tribe
0: oh yeah big ass were...
1: samoans man yeah, just, yeah you yeah. know the most intimidating looking dudes always cruising the streets of carson and especially when school let out man they would just be cruising around the school bumping their music man wow
0: crazy yeah i feel like every person i grew up in that was an islander they would say oh yeah those are my cousins and like oh yeah 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 yeah." they would rep them hella hard because that was like their sense of pride
1: booyah tribe they repped hard man and Razkaz, you mentioned Razkaz, i went to middle school and high school with well actually middle school and then high school he went to the rival school banning i went to carson high Yeah, Razzcast, Michael Myers. Yeah, big ups to all the the old Carson. Oh, yeah. He
0: did like a bunch of stuff with like El Boogie and Boogie Records or something like that. Yep. Got to see it. Yeah, I'm telling you, I was a nerd. Now you know why. Like, oh, this guy did buy records from Stacks Vinyl. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One more thing about Carson, though. Like, I was touching on the breakdancers. I was talking about like some of the artists that I grew up around, but the DJ culture was rich in Carson, man. The OG, OG (laughs) groups out of there, man, like unique technique, but Knights of the Turntable. They put out a sample that a lot of DJs cut to, man. Babu actually put it on his Super Duck Breaks back in the second album. But yeah, big ups to them. And then my first experience going to a middle school dance, I saw Joe Cooley. Joe Cooley was a mix master at that time, and he DJed my middle school dance. And Joe Cooley was cutting it up like three hours of just straight killing it, man. I mean, like people couldn't even dance because he was just going off man
0: real quick what was the thing that babu used because i you know duck breaks that's my shit what was the thing yeah and that's a turntable use what was
1: the sample yeah i got it right here <laughs> when you hear the sample you'll be like oh i've cut uh, to that before yeah
0: oh okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and he made that the half time chop
1: he he chopped it up even yeah. even slower yeah, yeah. Can you hear that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, these were like, you know, JDC records, man, like same record labels as- uh, Oh,
0: that's uh, Bounce, the Von Mason, right? Yeah,
1: Von Mason. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And a lot of the early, like Egyptian Lover, and they were all down with that record label.
0: And there is a direct connection to those folks, to how you grew up.
1: Wow. But yeah, Yeah. they, they all grew up South Bay, man. And then like, yeah, High C, Tony A. Tony A was the DJ for High C, but yeah, man. Techno Scratch. The local record store in Carson, man, was Magic Disc Records. But even our warehouse, our warehouse records, was like one of the main spots that artists would come through. So I would go to an in-store at Warehouse Records and there's LL Cool J signing records, or there's Houdini. It was one of the main stops when artists came to LA. Carson was one of their spots, Compton was one of the spots. They go to South Central, they hit different places. But yeah, Carson was always one of their spots.
0: Damn. Yeah, that's so dope. So you're 12 and 13. You have all these records coming out of your neighborhood. You see Joe Cooley Little doing your junior, it, high, junior high, high. Dance. high Are you just like, this is it? This is what I want to do?
1: I already had that feeling when I would just see the local heroes, Unique Technique, do their thing at the dance. But then when I saw Joe Cooley, I was like, oh, this is it, man. I, I got to do what he's doing. That's where I begged and pleaded and did whatever chores and work that I had to do to save up my little 300 bucks to get my first turntable. You know, 12, 13, you you don't have means to really make money except for going through your parents. So yeah, I worked hard to get one turntable. My neighbor worked out to get the other turntable. And then my other neighbor ended up working hard to get the mixer. And then we just kind of combined and used our boom boxes as our speakers you know, just out of our bedroom. And then we would rotate the equipment out of each other's houses. So you guys were this like artificial sound system. Pretty much, so, <laughs> yeah. And we all lived within the neighborhood that was just two streets really. And then there are cul-de-sacs, dead ends on each end. So one way in, one way out. My equipment would travel to this friend's house, this friend's house go over here, and then it's back to mine. But I always worked it out so that the equipment stayed at my house the most. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're a young
0: kid, like you know, 13, 14-year-old kid. Like, what were your dreams and goals at that
1: time? What could they have been? Well, shoot. At that time, I mean, all I saw was, you know, junior high dances. So I'm like, man, it would be so dope if I could just DJ a junior high dance one of these days. <laughs> and you know, like, of course, you got to work your way up. So my very first gig was a little house party and then a little, you know, 16-year-old quinceanera or whatever. And then I got my chance to eventually do one of the junior high dances and that was crazy because it was my first time being up on stage and then you see a sea of like 400 people packed into an auditorium and everyone's dancing to what you're playing i was just mesmerized i was blown away and i'm like okay this is it i gotta do this man
0: but when you say you want to do this and i think about traveling being on the radio no i mean i'm not even
1: thinking about that yet at that time all I could think about was, okay, this dance. Okay, maybe I could get that school dance over there. Or let me get a school dance in Long Beach. Or, oh, that'd be sick if I could do a school dance over in Hollywood. Again, man, little steps, man. It was all the little things. And then in Filipino culture, man, like you, you had debuts, man. So, like, man, I was, I was booking a lot of those and rocking girl debuts and things like that. And then you uh, eventually work your way up to parents' parties and... Company parties and it was just a progression, man. How were you getting these gigs then? Me being a shy kid, I, I was shy growing up. I'm still kind of shy when I see people, man, but I I'm a little more spoken now. But back when I was a kid, I could not talk to people at all, man. But I always had friends that knew how to talk. So I was always surrounded by dudes that had gift of gab. So they worked it for me. They worked it out talking to their mom to get their Christmas party or, oh, let me get that summer barbecue for the company or something like that. Oh, my cousin's getting married. Uh, they want you to, to DJ it. I didn't have the power of being able to talk to people, but I had friends that did. So they did the talking for me.
0: So you're doing these dances. You're doing the debut. You're doing the quinceañeras. So when did you start like getting like a lot of like sound and lighting? Did it get to that point? Or was it was all kind of very just borrowing your friend's
1: equipment in the 90s it was all about sound and lighting man so the sound clashes that they have in reggae culture like that was a big thing with djs back in that times in the 90s man like who had the better sound system who looked cool so again growing up in carson there was a hall that everybody threw their dances out of so you had hip-hop dances then you had like disco high energy freestyle type of things one group would set up a sound system on one side of the hall, and then the other group would set up their sound system. And then they take turns kind of going against each other. But it's all about sound, lighting, presentation, and then DJ skills. But then as you get into more the 90s, and then we get more into the junkie stuff, that's where the art of turntablism and the love of scratching and doubles and just everything kind of like took over the presentation. Tell me a little bit more about these battles of sound clashes.
0: So, I mean, a hall is, I'm thinking like a wedding hall when someone gets married. Is it like about who drowns one out? It
1: just sounds bassier? Uh, so, so like, uh, yeah, I guess the way they judged it was who looked and sound better, who had the better sounding system, or who had more bass. It would be common to see like 10 bass bins and then, you know, like, eight tops or something. And then you have like the trussing system, like 30 feet, 40 feet of truss, and it's like layered. And then uh, you have like helicopters or beacons or you had like the bar lighting, border lights, they were called border lights. And so yeah, you just had all these different types of lights and everything before all the intelligent lighting came into play. This is just the most simple, basic lighting, but all done in a way to where they were coordinated, they're synchronized, all that craziness all with fog <laughs> yeah you fog everything up so you can barely see and all you see is the lighting and you hear it you hear so at that point it wasn't even about the well you know the dj of course is doing their thing but it was all about presentation
0: dude so it's like you have like a mini guitar setter two guitar setters basically set up the opposite kind of side going back back, back, yeah pumping fog and you're playing like you know magic mic and we were the people in the crowd like into it or were they just kind of like what's going on
1: oh yeah you know you'd have your friends in there cheering for you so uh, again it was also about who had the most friends in the party and who could get the loudest so you know that was your basic sound clash back then i've done a sound clash also to see who could get a school dance wow uh, hollywood high school they had myself and then they had another local guy in the la hollywood area they had a set up on the stage so Legend, my crew, Legend Entertainment, we were on one side of the stage and then that other group, I already forgot the name of that crew, but they went, we went, they went, we went, and then it was up to the crowd to decide who gets the dance. And the criteria was sound, fog, lighting, DJing? Well, this was done at lunchtime, so we couldn't you know, fog up the place, but it's all about sound, lighting, and presentation or whatever. So yeah, we put up all this lighting, even without being able to really do lights because it's broad daylight, you know? And you got the gig, I assume, right? Yeah, we got the gig. <laughs> there,
0: there you go. There you go. 200 bucks. Aww, or whatever.
1: <laughs> 200 bucks split between 15 dudes.
0: That <laughs> all goes back into the equipment. All goes back to buy more fog juice for the fog machine. Yeah,
1: man. If we were just happy if we were all able to just take that cash and go to McDonald's or In-N-Out or something after and everyone can eat, man. We were happy. We were good.
0: That's all I'll say. Like, our dreams and hopes were so simple and dumb. Like, oh, I just want to DJ a high school dance or I want to get in McFlurry. And that's like, now it's just like, <laughs> I have four children to feed. Like, you pay up, motherfucker. So,
1: <laughs> were you always repping Legend Entertainment? Yeah, Legend was my very first, like, real crew. Spectrum was actually the crew I was, I started out with. But Legend was the first crew I actually officially started with my high school friends. And we, uh, we had a, good 20 plus year run as legend entertainment and
0: who are the other members if you can remember
1: i'll just name off the guys that we pretty much started with but it, it was oz buendia my man Lloyd bandanillo alex cerna and then like yeah steve ramos and my cousin gil gun gap yeah, so it's just a whole bunch of us but then after that it was like after we started our core then boom we had like 15 20 members <laughs> it was common for us to do like a gig with 15 20 dudes
0: I'm trying to do the math in my head. Like
1: that's (laughs) like 15, 20. But the gigs you're doing are just mobile. Mobile, man. Not even nightclubs yet, man. I'm I'm just talking when we were young, just getting started, everything was mobile, mobile DJ. And
0: let me ask you this. What was your family thinking
1: about this? Were they like, what what is our son doing in the garage? My mom and dad were open to it. They were cool. They kind of encouraged it because I think my dad was entrepreneurial as I was growing up too. So, he kind of saw it as a, a learning experience, kind of like running your own small little business. He thought in that type of way. And so he allowed me to go out, you know, 13, 14 year old doing a party. And then by the time the party ends and you pack up and then you take the equipment home, put the equipment away, you know, it's like two o'clock in the morning.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's
1: a full day's work.
0: You're not just showing up and DJing for two hours, like your day starts four hours
1: prior. So. Yeah. So I mean, he knew, I mean, you do the math, 15 guys splitting 150 bucks, 200 bucks at that time. And it's not much money made, but it was just a a learning experience. He thought it was kind of just a good thing for his son to learn, you know? So he let me do it.
0: Yeah. Parents are generally supportive. They're like, oh, our son is getting, it's that immigrant entrepreneurial like work ethic. Like, okay, this person doing something on his own, he's kind of going for it and and whatnot. And he's doing it with his friends and he's safe. I know where he's at, I know he's with that type of thing. So it's always nice to like hear affirmations of family being like supportive of that. You know, as the years kind of go along with the dances, I got another thing that blew me away. So I was talking to my girlfriend. I was like, Oh, I'm gonna interview ICIS like, Oh, Legend Entertainment, like, yeah, yeah. Ask him about the promo cards they would do. I was like, What, what do you mean? So she told me the story, she was on AOL chat room, like this is a long time ago. And this person your friend did say, oh, hey, I do promo for Legendary Entertainment. I have these promo cards. I'll send you one so when you come down, you can come hang out. And she got two and she rolled up 10 o'clock and able to cut the line. And I guess the lines at your parties were super crazy. Am I ringing any bells here? What am I talking about?
1: <laughs> You're taking me way back on all that stuff, man. So <laughs> a few years of doing some mobiles, we got hip to throwing our own dances. There was another crew that we kind of uh, modeled ourselves after and they were called United Kingdom. United Kingdom they were throwing all the big 18 and over dances at that time so we we're like oh okay maybe we can kind of follow in that same thing but we'll do all-age dances. <laughs> we threw our first all-age dance out of uh, San Marica Hall which is the hall where a lot of the guys in Carson were just doing all their parties so it was freestyle dances, hip-hop dances. With that our first dance was called the Brick House because it was just a, one big brick building pretty much. And so the brick house, we basically would uh, have these flyers and they would be promo cards, like you're saying. And you bring this promo card before 1030 and you get half off or you get it for ladies, it would be like free before 1030. So we could pack the place with ladies. And then, of course, the dudes would want to come if they know all the ladies are there. <laughs> So you do anything you can to get the ladies out. And these promo cards were like either free before 1030 or get half off before 1030. Anything to drive the ladies through those doors, you know. So, yeah, we would have our promotion team and we would have these promotion team meetings out of my parents' house in our patio. We would pack like (laughs) 30, 40 people in the patio just to pick up their promo flyers for that week. And then these uh, promoters would go out to their different cities. So, you know, someone would live in uh, you know, the Valley. Someone would live in Orange County. Someone would live out toward Long Beach, Carson, whatever. And then you have people in downtown. You had some people in Hollywood, some people all the way in the Inland Empire. So you, we had strategically promoters all over the place. And so they would meet at our house every Monday. We have our meeting, you know, hype them up, and then boom, send them out with a brand new batch of flyers. They pass it out at their schools. They pass it out at the malls. They pass it out at their workplace, their churches, whatever. Their flyers were stamped with their specific stamp. Any flyer that came back, we gave them a dollar per flyer that uh, came back. That was basically the run of the promo flyers.
0: So I wanna know, like how many people were coming to, let's say, Brick House? let's say, what was the
1: attendance for that? Brick House, I mean, the place holds 800 people, but we would cram over a <laughs> thousand. Hold on,
0: how old are you when you throw throwing this?
1: Man, we were uh, 15, 16. Dude, I thought you'd say like
0: 19, 18. So you got a bunch of 15 year olds packing a thousand people. We were doing
1: all age. Yeah. Yeah. We were doing all age.
0: It's regularly, like a thousand every time.
1: Yeah. I mean, it'd be once every few months. But eventually, when we got to about 18, 20, 21, like we were doing clubs on a weekly basis.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. Cause that is about when I started hearing about you know, friends traveling down to go see a legend or they would say, oh, I see ice legend, like, oh shit, that was a big deal. So, and you also mentioned you had folks from all over Southern California coming. It wasn't just people from Carson Long Beach. It was- I mean, our
1: base was Southern California and when we say Southern California, it's San Diego all the way up to Santa Barbara, you know? So we are talking Southern California, but eventually after our clubs were getting really big, it was common for us to do joint dances with uh, Bay Area folks or we would do stuff, you know, just to kind of unite all of California and people were driving down or flying down. And eventually when we were older, we were flying up to the Bay and throwing parties up at the Bay at city nights and Mission Rock and places like that. Holy shit, you're taking me back. Okay, so (laughs) you're getting
0: thousands of people on the regular. Was this how other successful
1: groups were doing it as well? Or were you just kind of in your own level? There were other successful groups they were in uh, different nationalities, so there were Japanese groups, there were Chinese groups, there were different promoters doing their thing in Los Angeles. the biggest clubs, say like the Palace in Hollywood or you know, which is now the Avalon or whatever Florentine Garden, any, any of these big these huge clubs that pack in like fifteen, two thousand people, you know, clubs were always open to everybody, but you had certain ethnic groups that ran the nights, so the best nights always went to white or black promoters, your uh, typical Friday, Saturdays. And then Latinos would also kind of be in that mix. And then us Asians, Filipinos, we had to get the scraps. So we always got like the off nights. So a Wednesday, a Thursday, or a Sunday. We didn't get any of the prime nights. You know, you have to start at the bottom. You get those crappy nights. You, we would even do a Monday or a Tuesday, and uh, we would pack it in. We'd pack in 800 people on a Tuesday night or Thursday night in downtown LA, our first big club at the Variety Arts Center, which is still there right across the street from the Staples Center. We would pack in 1,500 people every Thursday night.
0: Damn. Was it clearly like just a racial thing? Like, oh, we don't think these people will bring their friends. We don't want them here. Or is it more just, well, we don't
1: know? Yeah, I think the club owners just equated the coolness and... The majority of people to be black, white, or Latino. And when they thought of Asians, they were just like, ah, they're the whatever. But what they later found out after years of doing it, our community had spending power. Although we didn't have the best nights, we would pack it in on a Thursday night and we would still make more money than their prime nights. At one
0: point, did any of these bookers start feeling like these guys do as well as our Friday and Saturday night? Did you ever get rewarded a Friday or Saturday or was it still? We did.
1: We did eventually get rewarded some of those best nights, but it took a long time. I mean, we're talking years of doing the crappy nights before they eventually gave us some cool nights. Was
0: it kind of like, yeah, about time or was it gratefulness or what were you feeling personally?
1: As I look back at it right now and you're asking that question, it was like feeling of accomplishment. Like it was a big deal, like a really big deal to finally break the ground of like, oh, damn, we got a Friday night. Oh, damn, we're going to do Saturday at the Avalon or, you know, the Palace at that time. It was such a big deal to be able to get one of those prime nights because, I mean, like we said, we, we put in work, you know, it was all fun and games early on. It was always fun and games until we uh, started doing the clubs and taking it really serious. And then, you know, we're just constantly trying to elevate our games. So just... From throwing a dance, throwing a nightclub to actually having performers, recording artists come in and do something. So, Mad Lion or Rodney and Joe Cooley, we actually had them perform, or Yo Yo or The Far Side when they first came out, man.
0: Was it multiple rooms at these nightclubs or just one big room? And what was the music and what was the vibe of these parties?
1: When we first started, it was just one room. It was common to just uh, pack in 800 people thousand people, whatever. But then uh, like variety arts center in downtown LA that I was talking about that we used to do the source out of, man, that was four floors. So we're talking four rooms that we had to pack up, but you know, like the top floor was a thousand people solid. And then each room was like a hundred, 200 people that you had to pack, but that's, yeah, four different floors. And then they had a theater downstairs but we would never do the theater at the same time as the rest of the clubs. The only time we touched the theater was live performances. We would have the club going on the very top floor, the fourth floor, and then from the fourth floor we usher everyone down to the theater to do the concert. Okay, and that was like your far side, your Mad lines, and things like that. Yeah, exactly.
0: What were you playing each
1: for? It was always common to have like a reggae room. Another one was kind of just more of your dance, you know, house, that type of vibe. And then one was just kind of a chill, like more, you know, couches and all that make out room, whatever you want to call it. The DJ was in there playing slow jam or just real chill vibes. A lot of DJs that came in through the crew, man, they had to DJ all the other rooms. Some of the junkies, like they loved playing the reggae room or they loved playing some of the smaller intimate rooms. Rhett played some of the reggae rooms or, I mean, J-Rock would just be playing obscure stuff in some of the smaller rooms too.
0: We mentioned the beat junkies how did it coexist between having legend entertainment and also being a beat junkie how did you be able to do both at the same time
1: well when we started the crew everybody came from different crews J Rock was with some crew from orange county curse and rep and dj what were also out of the same crew that united kingdom that i was talking about those three came out of united kingdom babu short d styles They all had their own DJ crews that they were a part of prior to being beat junkies. But yeah, everybody came from a crew of some sort. But once we formed our, I guess you could quote unquote, super crew of DJs, then a lot of the other guys just kind of dropped the other crews. But legend was a kind of a machine at that point, man, we were, this was 92. We were doing big clubs at that point already. And if you look at some of our flyers, we would always uh, feature the Beach Junkies. Actually, I'll say this: I mean, J Rock was passing out our Beach Junkie rings and kind of formalizing everybody being part of the crew. J Rock and Curse were uh, doing that at our Legend and United Kingdom dance. We did a Legend and United Kingdom dance together in San Diego, and J Rock was there giving out our first Beach Junkie rings.
0: Damn, dude! And did you have any idea this this is like, yo, this is like a superpower
1: of DJs? Or just like these are my friends, and we're gonna make a crew? Or uh... yeah, no. At that time, we uh, we weren't talking about superpowers or anything like that. We saw, you know, like what the Superman DJs were doing in New York, what the X-Men DJs who eventually became the Executioners. We just kind of saw the crew element like that, and we said, let's do something like that here on the West Coast and for Cali. And so yeah, you had the pickles doing their thing up north and then us junkies uh forming as a crew down here in the south. We had Shortcut 2 seasons ago and asked him how did he join? He was like through D-Styles and doing battles and then he, he battled Rhett. Yeah, yeah. He battled Rhett. That was the night the whole crew were just kind of like there and we were we we're mesmerized at what Short and D-Styles were doing. But I think the time when uh D-Styles and Short came to Curse's house and just showed us I mean, this is a time when we're all doing, you know, stabs and they were on flares and double click flares and all this crazy stuff. It it was just blew our mind, man. So yeah, we took them in as crew immediately. (laughs) They were able to still maintain being part of the Scratch Pickles, but they were beat junkies before becoming Scratch Pickles. So
0: that's one thing I've always wondered, like, because the roster has been, It's been pretty much the same overall. Like, I know, uh, you know, like Havoc, Curse, and what are not as active, and Symphony was at one point. How did the group kind of manage all these different styles and schedules and personalities? What was the chemistry like at the peak of the Beat Junkies?
1: Well, the chemistry has always been friends first, everyone just homies. But I think when you got into the late 90s, when everyone was kind of just peaking doing their thing, like, man, I mean, you know, like you had Rhett with the Visionaries, you had Jay already, you know, doing his thing and going out with JD and you know, Dilla and all of that stuff. And then Babu with Dilated, everyone was just kind of doing theirs. And then I was still doing clubs heavily. And then myself, Curse, Repmatic, Mellow, like all of us were heavy in radio at that point, too. The guys were all battling too. So at that time, they were winning IFT and a lot of different uh, battles at that time. The group was just very, very active. I think the cool thing that defined the junkies is we touched everything. We weren't just battle DJs. You had guys that were in production, they had guys that were in radio, we had guys that were throwing nightclubs, the guys that were battling, and then. Just a good mix of everybody doing, covering every type of turntablism out there that exists. And uh, Beat Junkies kind of covered it all.
0: It seems like it is always respected and valued. You know, like I remember like listening to Melody and J-Rock tapes, like I'm gonna hear some breaks. And then Babu had beats. And then you had the radio and throwing parties and y'all could scratch and juggle. Like, I think that's super amazing. I think kind of like, yeah, everyone like hypes you up, but I think people really don't like recognize how talented everyone is in so many different avenues. You know, and then yeah, when everyone is kind of doing their own thing, is that when you start to get into the the stacks, the retail
1: side of things? The way that all came about was again like late 90s, everyone was peaking, everyone was kind of like just all over the place with their careers. You know, you had guys on the road, guys that were touring. You had guys getting signed to Capitol Records. <laughs> One of our other guys, Tommy Gunn, he was uh, working at Loud Records and, you know, breaking every group from Wu-Tang to Alcoholics. So, like, everybody was had their hands in different aspects of the music industry. And then you yeah, had myself doing clubs. Everyone was uh, doing their thing. But the one thing around the late '90s was that uh, all the guys were working for a record store called Fat Beats. Fat Beats was the hub for records in Los Angeles, and it definitely ingrained hip hop in LA. In that late '90s, there was uh, two real hip hop stations in Los Angeles, which was Power and the Beat, and Beat Junkies were on both stations, and then. APFK was the big underground station. We had our own shows there too. So we we were just covering radio all over. Getting back to the record store, the guys were all working when they weren't on road or on tour or any of that stuff. They're just kind of juggling both. But I was just like, yo, man, why don't we take what we're doing and let's open up our own record store? The idea kind of floated around, but I think because of the timing and everybody was so into what they were doing, No one really uh, saw that vision. So I ended up opening up the store by myself. (laughs) When originally I I went to all the guys, yo, we should open our own record store. The guys continued working for Fat Beats and then I opened a record store called Stacks. And I opened our flagship store in Cerritos, which was where the Beat Junkies was formed and founded and where majority of the guys live. And my thinking for Cerritos out of all places was, Here in L.A., you have Orange County and you have L.A. County. Cerritos sat right on the border of both. And so I felt like, yo, that would be like the perfect spot kind of in between both cities. And then we had a rich DJ culture in that Cerritos area and Long Beach area to where I just felt like it would definitely support this store. And so Stacks was born. And then um, the guys that helped design the look and feel and the flyers and everything was all the Mixwell guys. Oh, wow. Mixwell. Dope. Dope. And when I was thinking of a store name, it was actually in the Mixwell office that I was like, you know, I'm thinking of this thing, this thing, this thing. And I was like, what do you think? And I'm like, I like Stacks. Call it Stacks, man. Stacks Vinyl. Stacks Records, you know, Stacks the Vinyl Authority. So Stacks the Vinyl Authority was the final name. And um, that's how we, we came up with Stacks. But yeah, all the marketing, all the the direction everything the look and feel all came from uh mixwell
0: dude i occasionally uh go on ebay look up mixwell shirts to see if there's any around but they haven't reached that level of people are selling them yet but one day if if you talk to your friends at mixwell if they have any dead stock larges let me know we can can work out a little trade i'll be happy to uh rock a mixwell shirt the year 2020. so what year would the, the store open i'm sorry i should have asked that
1: stacks opened up around 2001.
0: okay did you go to college for a small business or anything? Or how did you even start? Like, oh, I'm going to go open a store. Like, what's the nuts and bolts of opening a, a record store or any business like that?
1: So all those years of doing mobile parties, running a mobile DJ crew, throwing parties where we were averaging a 1,000 people per party, and, and, and then eventually throwing concerts and things like that, all that experience, I, I just kind of uh, took it. I'm like, I could sell some records. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Little did I know, man, little did I know that there's a lot more that goes into running a store or a retail business than what I've experienced in throwing parties and clubs. But it's all pretty much the same concept, man. Instead of uh, selling tickets, you're selling vinyl. Instead of upselling a concert ticket or whatever, you're upselling some t-shirts or extra things to go with the records that are buying. I just kind of took those same things. So I basically dropped out of college around that time, because I was like a forever college student (laughs) at that time. And um, when I made the decision to open up Stacks, I I just made that decision, okay, I'm gonna drop out and just focus on this. And then that was it.
0: Eventually, what kind of made you kind of close the chapter on Stacks?
1: When DJs were coming to the store with laptops and hard drives, trying to trade music, I knew that was a big sign when I saw that Final Scratch was being overtaken by a program called Serato and Jazzy Jeff was endorsing this program. I kind of saw that coming. And then uh, The Perfect Storm. You had like the Great Recession that hit around 08, 09, people losing their jobs People not having the discretionary income to buy vinyl anymore, or it wasn't necessary to, to have vinyl to DJ parties anymore. You could download music or trade with others. All those signs I saw come in, I knew I had to just shut down shop. Once the recession hit, it was fast. I still had like five more years on my lease <laughs> for the record store. and. There's no way I was ready to file for bankruptcy at that point, man, because uh, there's just no way the sales were going to allow me to be able to stay in business in 08 going into 09. Yeah. Within six months to a year, man, it just declined that fast to where I, I had to shut down shop. Wow.
0: And the reason I wanted to kind of ask that question, because in current state, as you know, I said, at the top of the program, this is kind of our quarantine COVID season. You know, what are the, some of the things that you kind of are missing on or lost with not being able to DJ and whatnot with the current state of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. So what I'm experiencing with COVID and and what's going on currently is, yeah, the whole DJ community is missing out on the ability to be able to play for people, period. In any of these live settings, whether it was clubs or concerts or any kind of live event, man, DJs are are hurting because uh, number one, our, source of income is gone through doing these live events number two that social interaction of just being around people that's gone that's lost and then the ability to be able to just be out and about and experience things i get motivation i get inspiration i love just seeing djs or artists and live performers i gotta see shows man and not being able to to do that hurts man (laughs) you know all that being taken from us it just made it very difficult during these times but on the flip side of that though you have these opportunities with technology to have this kind of interview with opening set or you have like a platform like twitch you know all the dj's started out doing their live streams on facebook and instagram and then trying youtube and of course mixcloud as well but twitch was just the platform that was just like the perfect storm for DJs. With that being said,
0: what was the learning curve for you? It's different for a lot of people. Some people are like, figured it out. Other people are just like, uh, they're still not there. What about yourself?
1: Man, I'm not a super techie person, man. So the learning curve was very difficult for me to learn OBS, learning cameras and the camera settings and sound card, video card, I like to video mix as well so then integrating videos with the stream and all of that like and then i have friends that are doing green screens and all that craziness i'm not there (laughs) it's a lot dude it's a lot thank you for saying that because it
0: is because we went from like if we just follow your career yeah in the timeline of a dj we went from dj to sound guy to promoter to designer to lighting guy To business manager, and now we're like running a MIDI like broadcast, like TV studio in our home. So yeah, do not feel bad that you don't have a green screen and all these other things.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you know, much respect to guys like DJ Scene. They they got it on lock as far as their visuals and the way they present themselves with the green screen and all of that stuff is just crazy. But I mean, some of the dopest dudes are the guys that don't even do anything special. They're just mixing, and it's just all about the good music and the way they cut it in. So. You know, much respect to everybody that's doing that thing. I I love the Twitch community, and I love seeing all the DJs do their thing. Stank Palmer, I saw him this morning. And before this, you would have to drive or travel to go see your favorite DJ. In these COVID times, man, you're just a flick of a finger here, and you're in this guy's room, or you don't like that vibe, boom, you jump into another room, or you want to just club hop to all of the rooms. You could do that, man. That's the beautiful thing about being in this times, But I still prefer the live show element. I love seeing DJs do their thing in a live element. I love seeing a show like a concert, MC do their thing, dancers do their thing, all of that, man. I what was
0: the last time. concert you went to,
1: actually? The last real shows I saw was really at NAMM. That was my last thing. And that was uh, end of July, February, pretty much. February going into the pandemic, I was just doing a lot of events. I was playing for a lot of different types of things, and then the pandemic hit. Do you remember your last gig, though? last DJ gig? My last gig was Snapback. We did Snapback, and it was against the wishes of a lot. You know, over half the crew were those uh, very cautious type, and they were just like, oh, my God. If someone gets the coronavirus at Snapback and they blame it on Snapback, you're just going to kill it for all of us. And I'm like, hey, man, I ain't scared of that, man. (laughs) let's do this let's do snapback and so myself remark trek life we were the only three out of the crew and we did it man but we got a lot of backlash from our own crew arguments all of that stuff going into that but yeah my last gig was snapback
0: i'll ask about snapback in a second but currently let's say someone came to you like do you want to i see you want to come dj
1: my events like what would it take for you to feel safe and secure I take precaution i do all the alcohol and you know wearing the mask and all of that stuff but i feel pretty secure just being out in public and being around people period um if i was asked to do any type of live show or live performance now yes i would still kind of feel a little funny being in a big big crowd but as long as i'm a good distance away from the you know like from the crowd I think I'm cool. If I'm on stage or in a DJ booth and I'm separated from everybody,
0: I'm cool. And, and your expertise and wisdom, should DJs charge a little more now because there's hazard to these type of things or should they just kind of charge what they've always charged?
1: Uh, it's a catch-22 because everybody's out of work. You charge your rates and the, the person not feeling your rates, they can always go to somebody else. But if you're being hired for a show and, of course, you are the, the specific talent and they want you and your vibe, then they'll pay what they pay. But if you're talking corporate function or you're talking like a, a live event and you're, you're going up against other DJs, then, yeah, it's a catch-22. You charge and they're not feeling it. They can definitely find 100 other DJs that are way cheaper than you. It kind of did happen to me. Oh, wow. I was asked to do a virtual grand opening. So they're, they're going to do a grand opening of like this um, kind of drink hangout type place. They wanted me to just uh, DJ from home and uh, pipe in. But then they asked my rates. I gave them my rates and I guess they weren't feeling it, man. So they went with someone that was definitely uh, a lot more affordable in their eyes. Sure, sure. I was going to say like this kind of just
0: sounds like djing unfortunately in general like it's gonna happen you're gonna be undercut or you could overcharge and get what you want so
1: but on the flip side of that man uh you know i I just landed an account where i'm gonna be doing um a virtual 5k (laughs) for at&t and so this virtual 5k i'm playing pretty much tunes talking to all the guys that are so they're supposed to be running or walking or being active limping and crawling <laughs> yeah all of that stuff uh all from home all safe and yeah i mean i got hired because of my good work and and uh all of that versus uh anybody else so yeah i mean the flip side of that is is uh, your reputation is also a good thing or they see your activeness and uh they see that's a good thing as well so
0: it helps. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad to hear that in these times that people still respect like your resume, your quality of work, and also the fact that you're kind of pivoting to like new technology and you're you're keeping up with what's going on. I think a lot of friends were talking. We're all kind of thinking, what's going to happen? Like, are we going to be undercutting? Are we going to be getting paid less or more? But it's like it's it's the same kind of who the fuck knows type of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who knows? yeah no no it's, it's gonna happen like when we don't get gigs i think why do i get the gig like you never know it could be a lot of different reasons so it's good to know at least that is still kind of happening so i asked you about your last gig snapback thursday and that's kind of how like i know in the current form that's kind of how i think of you as well as being a beat junkie i feel that not a lot of history has been kind of been documented about snapback thursdays tell me about the members first of all who are the djs
1: in that project so snapback it consists of uh Thirteen guys, <laughs> you like <laughs> you like a lot of crew. Can't you just have like five
0: people in a group? Like that's what I was gonna. That was my next question. Like why somebody you like thirteen? Okay, thirteen
1: people. If you can I don't remember know. them, For some reason part. I'm always I'm always part of a uh, big crews. Yeah, so just, Legend just, was a big crew. Beach just, is a big crew, <laughs> and now Snapback is a big crew.
0: You're a family of four sons. That's on the bigger that's, side. The, that's so, a bigger family
1: then. Yeah, than most.
0: bro, <laughs> you're consistent. So there you go. So. <laughs> Name all 13 members that look at your phone. No notes.
1: <laughs> Go. <on. laughs> okay. So out of North Hollywood, which is the flagship of Snapback, where it started, you have Stubbs, who's pretty much the chief. So Stubbs, the chief rocker is one, b DJ Everready, Paris Paul. So those four make up North Hollywood. Then Long Beach is the one that kind of like blew up the name for Snapback. In Long Beach, it's myself, Remark, Orion, my man Taquan, the MC, Trek Life, Gene Hove, that's the Long Beach crew. And then our downtown LA fam, which is a DJ JP and then myself, we, we run the, the downtown LA ones along with Stubbs on occasion. And then we have our Las Vegas crew that's Chims, that's Double Play, that's Verse, B Stang now because he moved from North Hollywood to Vegas. That makes up pretty much the whole Snapback crew. It's like a pretty wide range of DJs and
0: geography as well. I mean, was that a conscious decision or just like you guys, again, is that entrepreneurial spirit coming out and you saw, oh, I see opportunities or is it just homies?
1: It just kind of happened organically, man. Like uh, North Hollywood is the the first set of guys that I named off. Those are the ones that started Snapback even prior to me. They would ask me to come in and uh, do their events on Thursday nights. And um, it was dope. And then Federal Bar is the home base for Snapback over in North Hollywood. And then they opened a Federal Bar in Long Beach. And so those North Hollywood guys, they were like, uh, well, we don't know if we can pull in Long Beach. We, we better ask for some help. So they pulled me into the mix, Remark, and then we kind of pulled our own crew together to help us promote. And, uh, and then likewise, everything happened with uh, Los Angeles. Everything happened in Vegas. So... That's kind of like how the crew became.
0: And was there like a sense of deja vu? Like, did you feel like, oh, I've done this twice already with managing a crew or did you learn some new things along the way? Uh,
1: a lot of the same things that I, I learned early on with Legend. Yeah, like I've suggested it or I've offered it to the guys or just shared experience. And then we make our decisions around everyone's opinion and of what they think, you know? But yeah, no, uh, being able, being part of big crews, All the way around it's 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 always a you know a rocky boat (laughs) but you just kind of manage and you just um, make it happen
0: can you give us like you know maybe two or three tidbits on like how to be a part of a group or a lot of different personalities and time zones like what's a way to kind of you know manage all that
1: the number one thing i i can say is man communication number one okay you know for us being all in different areas and different cities and us being on these zoom calls and us being on these google meets and things like that us constantly being on text message it's key to always just communicate same with the junkies same with the legend guys we all still communicate regularly yeah communication is key if you just decide to do something without running it by the guys then someone's gonna feel left out someone's gonna feel like you know FOMO. <laughs> That's where you get your arguments and your fights is that uh, not everyone knows about it or not everyone was included. So you try your best to include everybody.
0: Sure, sure. And entering the phase of like, you know, like Zoom or in this case, Twitch, how did you kind of like say like, oh, I'm, I'm going to dive into this? What was your kind of motivation to dive into, yeah, this whole world?
1: Well, it was seeing the writing on the wall with a uh, Instagram and Facebook always getting pulled down. I mean, you know, like Shortcut was already one of the first early adopters. And then out of our Snapback crew, DJ Verse was one of our early adopters to jump onto Twitch before the whole wave of DJs hit. And they were constantly telling us all, just, yo, jump in, man, this is where it's at. And so it took at least another month and a half, two months before I even jumped into it. And I feel like I was late. But um, yeah, those guys were going two months heavy before any of us really made the jump. I saw with the Twitch platform being a gamers platform, it being owned by Amazon, it having the backing and the music uh, licenses for video games, it was a no brainer to where they would allow you to be able to DJ full sets and not get cut off like on Instagram. So I love that aspect. And then I instantly saw the interaction on the chat rooms, man. It was so much more lit in Twitch than it was on Instagram or Facebook or anything else, man. Mixcloud gives you that ability also. But man, there is no interaction, man. Like nobody is like talking to you in those rooms.
0: Yeah, like as much as I like Mixcloud for their, their content and yeah, I find a lot of like Del Brito shows. It's still like a buggy kind of, it doesn't work the way you want it to work all the time. So I can't imagine like going on there and streaming and like that going seamless and stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. So, I mean, I decided to make that jump, you know, to answer your question, I, I decided to make that jump and, you know, again, it was just all organic and kind of like us wanting to still play music for people that were kind of going through the whole pandemic times and just kind of turning to music as they're healing and turning to music as they're, and then even these chat communities as their interaction with people. So We were already doing snapback daily twice a day on instagram so we just kind of took that and took it over to twitch and it's been dope but now with twitch everybody has their individual pages that that they're doing on top of snapback and then we have our junkies page and then the legend guys want to do a special thing so I'm bouncing around doing live streams with everybody.
0: Yeah, I feel like we have to live stream any minute now because you know you're you're very in demand. <laughs> so, what is your goals? I mean, with Twitch, because I think everyone's trying to figure that out.
1: Man, I, I mean, I play on Twitch at least three, four times a week, but really on my own account, maybe once in a week, and then everything else is like junkies or guest sets or whatever. You know? I really don't have like a goal to take over twitch or do anything like that but i just want you know like snapback to be like a very solid brand on twitch and one of those channels that people can say they hear about snapback or they they see a little thing i'm on snapback boom they tune in they know what they're gonna get they're gonna hear some good music they're gonna get some really cool interaction with people and just good times good vibes pretty much you know
0: all right all right and at the top i was kind of talking about your goals as a 13 year old (laughs) <laughs> what are your goals now as you know, a DJ, entrepreneur, parent of four? I mean, what are the things that you're trying to you know, accomplish these days?
1: Man, well, pre-pandemic, I had some uh, pretty big goals, uh, some pretty lofty goals to uh, unite people and do some really cool things. It's definitely pivoted from that. And I think we're doing it now on Twitch you know, or through Twitch we just did a big marathon, like a 12-hour marathon for both the Beat Junkies and for Snapback. And those were very successful. And Snapback, for instance, we raised like $10,000 for No Kids Hungry. And uh, that was cool. That was really cool. But yeah, being able to just play music and be able to do it with a purpose and help benefit some people that are in need, man, I, I think that's just dope in itself.
0: Nice. Nice. I like that. So, you're a music person, obviously, you know, you had your yes. records and your musician yourself, you said you played four levels of saxophone. What is a piece of music that's been kind of getting you out of bed and getting your day
1: right now? Is there something you could recommend for us to check out? You know, I can't say there's one piece of music, man. But what's been getting me out of bed every day is like, again, just tuning to the Twitch community. And it's like, I'm jumping in different DJ's rooms and I'm getting amped up, man. like, I'll hear Stank Palmer do some really dope, chill edits and stuff. I'm like, yo, I don't have that, man. That's sick. Yo, that's dope. And then I'm getting that feeling listening and watching other DJs. I'm like, yo, that remix, I've never heard that. Or that combination or that song combination or the way they blended this or the way they mashed up this acapella to that. I'm like... Uh, it gives me inspiration every day. So I think in these times, in these COVID times right now, like just me tuning in and seeing DJs do their thing, it, it's inspiration, period.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely echo that. There's times where I'm watching a friend and I'm like, damn, I want to stream now. I want to get on and DJ. And then, you know, I, I remember yeah. I have things to do or whatever. Cool. Where can we find you on Twitch? You mentioned a lot of places. Give us a rundown and where can we catch you?
1: Well, you can definitely catch me on my own page, which is Twitch. Dot tv slash dj Icy ice you can also find me on snapback so that's slash snapback underscore live snapback live i do weekly on the Beach junkies and right now that's fluctuating between mondays and tuesdays right now but yeah you can catch me there so those are the three main channels
0: so dope yeah that has a lot of inspiration to receive and also to be giving out so thank you for being on there and playing music man oh thank you man appreciate it (laughs) right on man well thank you very much for your time as always we definitely clock some hours in here give it up for our dude mr icy ice everybody yeah
1: yo thank you king most thank you john appreciate you guys man thanks for having me on the show